Good morning. Please turn with me to John 6, 1 through 29. This can be found in the Pew Bible, page 891, or in the following Jesus Bible, page 1147. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When everyone came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go across the way for children's worship, uh, hang on, hang on, wait guys, wait guys. Miss Brittany's going to lead you over there. There we go. Good patience. We're, We're excited, I know. It's exciting to worship together. It's a good impulse. Well, today we're looking at two remarkably well-known stories from the life of Jesus. Uh, Everybody knows about him walking on water. Everybody knows about the feeding of the 5,000. But rarely do we consider the two texts in conjunction with one another, let alone do we realize the importance of reading the two narratives together. So in the first part of John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 men, which means there probably were women and children there as well. So he feeds a whole lot of people off of five barley loaves and two little fish. It's an amazing miracle that demonstrates not only that Jesus is God, but also that he wants to care for people, that he has compassion for people's needs. But how do people respond to the miracle when he does it? Look at verse 14 in chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So when the crowd see what Jesus has done, they go bananas. They say, this is the great prophet. This is the one that Moses told us would come, the prophet who is greater than him. Let's make this guy king. And you think that's a good thing, right? I mean, Jesus is going viral. Uh, A lot of people are excited about him as a result of this sign. The sign points to something, doesn't it, though? And that was the problem. They didn't see past the sign. They didn't see what the sign, what the miracle indicated. They didn't know who Jesus really was. They didn't know what Jesus really came to do. So where's the malfunction? Why don't they understand the sign? If you like to take notes, you can go to the back of your worship guide. There's some space there with blanks. Here's the first blank in your outline. The people in this text were excited about Jesus because of two things, physical satisfaction and entertainment. Physical satisfaction and entertainment. This is why they were excited about Jesus. And as a result, they misunderstood him. He fed their bellies, they were physically satisfied, and they were entertained by this miracle, by this sign. So later in the text, the people wake up the next morning and they see that Jesus is gone. So what do they do? Like groupies. Like deadheads following the Grateful Dead around the country, they get in their boats and they follow Jesus to the next town. They'd seen his last show, they had a great time, they had some food, they were amazed, so they're coming back for more. They were satisfied physically, they were entertained, that's why they came to Jesus. Look at verse 25. i to turn my page. When they found him on the other side of the sea... They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, 
but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They didn't come because they'd seen this miracle and understood the meaning behind it. They didn't come because they knew that Jesus is who, what his true identity and purpose were. They didn't come for eternal life. They didn't come for forgiveness of sins. They came for food and they came to have a good time. They came for temporal needs, physical satisfaction, and for a show to boot. And absolutely none of this should surprise you because this is human nature. If a human being, uh, if their physical needs are satisfied, they got food and clothes and a roof over their head, and if on top of that they're entertained, we're usually pretty happy. I mean, just look at political polls. You know, as long as the American people have got food on their plates, money in the bank, and as long as the latest Star Wars show is good, the popularity of the president goes up, right? But if the baby formula can't be bought and gas prices go down, and Obi-Wan just isn't as good as we thought it was going to be, lo and behold, popularity goes down. People aren't happy. Human beings vote for physical prosperity, for provision, for satisfaction. They vote for happiness, liberty, enjoyment. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? No one's nodding. Patrick thinks it's familiar. Thank you, Patrick. Do you know how the Roman government, as oppressive as they were, do you know how they got people to go along with their rule? In 140 B.C., Roman politicians decided to start providing wheat for all the families who didn't have food. And they opened up government-run public gladiatorial games to keep people entertained. They bought votes with food, and with games. That's all a human being really needs. And that's what the people in our text wanted. That's what the Romans wanted. And frankly, it's what you and I and people today want. Physical satisfaction and entertainment. You got those two things and you're good to go. As long as our bellies are full, as long as our minds are distracted and entertained, then people are pretty malleable. They're easy to deal with. But how many of you find yourself in that position? You have no major physical deficiencies or needs that you can think of. Or if you can think of one or two, there are enough fun things in your life to keep you distracted from those needs. You're entertained. Here's your next blank. When we are physically satisfied and amused, it's easy to miss the point of the gospel. When we are physically satisfied and and amused, it's easy to miss the point of the gospel. Now, that's not just true for non-Christians. That's true for Christians as well. How? Here's your next blank. When we've got everything we need, we can start to think of Jesus primarily as a source of temporal satisfaction in this life. So when you've got everything you need, it's easy to look at that and say, look at everything Jesus has given me. Look at all these temporal blessings. When we got everything, we start to think that's why Jesus is here rather than, it's the next part of that blank, rather than Jesus being a source of blessing in the next. When we've got everything, it's easy to start thinking of Jesus as a means to temporal satisfaction in this life rather than blessing in the next. And that's part of the rebuke that Jesus says in our text. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says there's something more important than having a full belly. The bread that I gave you is fine, but you're going to be hungry again later. You're still going to die after eating this bread. Want something more than all this. Want something better than food and clothes and a house. Want something more lasting, something more real than wheat and water and yeast. But plenty of Christians in St. Tammany talk like the people in this text. People will say, well, Jesus has really blessed me with this thing or with that thing. They'll say, I'm so satisfied and I'm so happy. This must be a blessing from Jesus. I agree. It is a blessing from Jesus. In fact, I agree so much, I'm going to give it its own blank in the worship guide. Here's your next blank. Anything that we experience short of death and hell is a blessing from Jesus. Anything we have short of death and hell is a blessing from Jesus, but that means... Not only the fun and satisfying things. But you rarely hear somebody saying, Jesus has really blessed me with my cancer. Rarely do we say, Jesus has really blessed me with my unexciting life. Jesus has really blessed me with my suffering. Why Why don't we say that? Because we're coddled. Our physical satisfaction and amusement have made us Christians start to think that our life's goal is to be happy, to be fulfilled, to have my best life now. And it's a lie, guys. It is a lie. That's not what we were made for, physical satisfaction and amusement. And when you look beyond our life, plight of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are today, on the day of Pentecost, starving, who are being persecuted and killed for their faith. This attitude does not account for their experience, nor does it account for what Jesus commands clearly in the Gospels to suffer. He calls us to suffer. Here's your next blank. When I believe the postulate that blessings equals physical provision or good feelings, I exclude myself from the majority experience of Christians today. When I think this way, I exclude myself from the majority experience of Christians today and for the last 2,000 years. This sort of belief that Jesus wants me and you to be happy and healthy and comfortable is not the teaching of the Bible or the experience of most Christians over the last 2,000 years. In fact, this is a negative side effect of religious liberty paired with a failure of discipleship and sanctification in Christian churches. Because what does the Bible say? Look in your worship guide. as two quotes. First from Jesus in Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
Then Paul says in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the greater thing of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and that I may know him and the power of his resurrections and may share what? His sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This doesn't sound like satisfaction. This doesn't sound like happiness. This doesn't sound like fulfillment. This sounds like dying for other people. And when our bellies are full and our minds are distracted, it's easy to forget this. It's easy to start thinking that Jesus is a means to an end, and that end is me being happy. That's what these people thought. Hey, Roman citizens got bread and games from their king. This guy's given us bread and a, and a show. Let's make him the king. So we live in a prosperous nation. So we live in a prosperous parish. Let us not be fooled too. But this doesn't only impact Christians. It impacts non-Christians as well. Here's your next blank. If people don't have pressing physical needs, or if they're distracted and amused, it's easy for them to see no need of Jesus. If everything's great, life's good, they're happy. It's easy to see no need of Jesus. And the people in our text are not believers, and they don't really want Jesus. They just wanted more free bread, and they wanted to see the show. And when an unbeliever has everything they think they need, why would they come looking for more? As Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they got everything. People have to be able to see their true need within if they're to ever come to Christ. But when a person has nothing, when their natural state is deficiency and dependency, it becomes easier to see the other needs that they have as well. So there's two opposing problems here. First is thinking that Jesus is here to make me happy, to meet my physical needs. Or if I've got everything already, well, I don't need Jesus. I'm taken care of. And both of these attitudes misunderstand who Jesus is and why he came. Here's your next blank. Jesus came to give us life that doesn't end. That's why he came. Jesus came to give us life that does not end. And what does that life look like? It goes on in your notes. Eternal life in communion with God and with his people. That's why he came, to give us that kind of a life, life that doesn't end, eternal life in communion with God and his people. And there is deep joy in that. And there is deep fulfillment in that future hope. But, here's your next part of the blank, it doesn't always look like happiness as the world measures it. The joy of knowing God, the joy of eternal life, the fulfillment that comes from knowing God and knowing Christ and being made like him and even emulating his sufferings, there is great purpose. In fact, the great purpose that you want is there. It just doesn't look like what the world wants. That's what Jesus came to do, but we miss it. Christians miss the point of the gospel. Non-Christians miss the point of the gospel, but... I think we need to be particularly concerned about the next generation, our kids. As parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, 
You who have made baptismal vows to these kids who've been baptized, you've said, I want to be like a godparent to these children. We need to be thinking about these issues in relation to our children. In our efforts to provide every need and every desire to our kids, in our attempts to make them happy, well-adjusted, entertained little people, are we actually creating barriers between them and the gospel? Are we hiding their need of Jesus from them? It's a question we would do well to consider. As a, kid, as a dad, I don't want my kids to suffer ever. And I want them to have nice things. I want them to be happy. But Jesus didn't seem to feel that way about his disciples all the time, though. Granted, they were grown men, but they were no less his responsibility. And what did he let them do? Look at verses 16 through 19 in our text. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Jesus let his disciples venture into suffering. And then his approach to them provoked fear. In fact, it was through suffering and through difficulty that they came to terms with who Jesus really was. Isn't this fascinating? The people that their bellies are full and they're happy and distracted don't get it whatsoever. And the guys who are in the darkness, who are hurting, who are afraid, they're the ones who see who Jesus is. I'm not saying we should starve our kids or make their lives miserable and certainly don't put them in dangerous way. But have we as adults bought into the culture's lies about affluence and entertainment for ourselves? And are we thereby rearing our children and grandchildren and the children of this church to be mindless drones so focused on how they feel in the moment that they've forgotten completely about eternity? Are we leading them toward being obsessed with this world and its delights or are we directing them to the great lover of their soul toward eternity, toward the eternal kingdom of God? And what are we, grown-ups, living for? What are we pursuing, enjoying, loving, and espousing? Have we become like all the others rendered useless and malleable by loaves and fishes, bread and games? Have we become consumed with the temporal, the passing with this life? So what's the solution? Do we need to vote in a certain way? Do we need to become ascetics and start monasteries, just move out into the wilderness, only eat fiber, never watch TV, and never have fun? Well, I mean, Jesus did give them bread and fish. There's nothing inherently wrong with a good meal. That was a blessing from Jesus. It wasn't an ultimate blessing, though, right? That that bread's not going to last you forever. Here's the key in my reading of this text and my analysis of the world that we're, we're living in. It's your next blank. We need to develop a defense against idolizing satisfaction and amusement. We need to develop a defense against idolizing satisfaction and amusement. If this issue 
of satisfaction and amusement isn't on your radar, if you aren't thinking about this and defending against this, you will fail. Because this is the cultural water that you swim in. And it's nothing new. It's not like this happened in the last 12 years. This is human tendency. The Romans did it. It's still happening now. As long as the dopamine keeps on a coming, right? As long as the food's on the table and you can keep clicking next on YouTube, we're good to go, right? So if we're not fighting this innate tendency toward idolizing satisfaction and amusement, we will waste our lives. Utterly. Or worse, we and the generations after us will die forever. That's what's at stake here. And I can't help but think of Neil Postman's classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, except the death we're talking about is eternal. So how do we defend against this innate human tendency in all of our flesh and that's just all around us? I've got three defenses to offer you. A theological defense, a practical defense, and a countercultural defense. Uh, I commend all three to you, starting with the theological defense. It's your next blank. And the theological defense is simple. The divine lordship of Jesus. The divine lordship of Jesus. Why is it that we get Jesus walking on the water right in the middle of this story about the loaves and fish? Because here in the middle of the story, you see the truth about Jesus. He wasn't just the great prophet. He wasn't just an earthly king who would give away bread and neat experiences. Jesus is God. Look again at 19 through 21. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. It actually, in the Greek, says I am. There's real debate as to whether he's really making, pushing that point, but he's still walking on water, which only God can do. Verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So who walks on water? Kids, have you all ever walked on water? No. You, tr- you could try it if, if your mom and dad are nearby and they're, they're watching you, you know. Don't do it by yourself. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to fall in that water. I can't walk on water. You can't walk on water. Nobody can walk on water except for, I don't know, the one who made water. He has that capacity. Additionally, in verse 21, it's kind of unclear. Like whether the, 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 the storm cleared up and so they were easy to, able to pass quickly to their destination or if they were just like teleported to their destination. It's unclear in the text. Regardless, these three verses and the things that happen is all God talk. Jesus is God and Lord. So how do we build a theological defense against idolizing satisfaction and amusement? Listen, if you really believe that Jesus is God, you're going to listen to him. And you're going to aim to follow him in every sphere of your life. You, you cannot take Jesus' word seriously. You can't daily be reading the Gospels and trying to live for this king while at the same time easily idolizing satisfaction and amusement. You'll be tempted, yes. You will fail at times, yes. But biblical Christian faith, if you're daily attending to Jesus being the God of the universe and the Lord of your life, he will be calling you away from those things to himself. And you will find yourself more and more satisfied by eternal things. Because how does King Jesus talk? He says stuff like this. Hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. I'm clothing the flowers and feeding the birds. 
Seek first my kingdom and all that other stuff will be taken care of, right? Following Jesus as Lord means bending my whole life toward his glory, toward his people, toward his purposes in the world, seeking out what he's doing in the world now and joining myself to it, even if it means suffering. So if you, as a Christian, are orienting your whole life around this idea that Jesus is God and he's Lord of your life, that's a great theological defense against idolizing amusement and satisfaction. These, the, that theological truth will challenge how you live. It'll challenge how you parent. It'll challenge how you communicate with your unbelieving friends. It, it challenges everything that Jesus is God and Lord. So that's the theological defense. But here's a practical defense uh, that flows from the theological one. It's your next blank. The practical defense is the distinctly Christian practices of generosity. That's the first one, generosity. Second is fasting. Third is quiet time alone. All the moms in the room are like, how does that happen? But yes, it's a distinctly Christian practice, quiet time alone. And fourth, quiet, undistracted intimacy with God. These practical defenses against satisfaction and amusement flow from the theological one. Generosity, fasting, quiet time alone, and quiet, undistracted intimacy with God. So in this text, there are only really two characters who seem to understand what's going on. It's not the disciples. They're confused and scared. And it's definitely not the crowd. Instead, who is it? It's a nameless little boy and Jesus. They're the two that seem to get it. Look at verse 5. Got to go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. Lifting up his eyes then and, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So who is this generous little boy? We don't know much about him except that he's a little kid. That's kind of implied in the syntax. So he's a, he's a younger child, um, so not a teenager. Uh, he's got barley loaves, which was ordinarily eaten by middle and lower classes. So it's just a norm, normal kid. And he's got a couple pickled or salted fish. So probably he's carrying a bag lunch, right? We don't know where he's going or why. But what does he do when Jesus wants to feed these people? Rather than securing his own personal satisfaction and making sure that his belly is full, keeping the food he had, instead he gave it away. He was generous and risked even hunger to serve Jesus. These two practices, radical generosity and fasting, have always been a part of the life of the Christian church. Denying ourselves good things for the provision of of others, why would we ever do that? <laughs> why would we skip a meal so that somebody else could eat? The only way we'll ever give of ourselves in that way is when we realize that everything we've got is a blessing from God. Anything we have short of death and hell has been given to us by Jesus so that we might be a blessing to others, so that we might steward these gifts for his purposes. He gives us what we have so we can give it away. 
This is why we tithe. This is why we give to the poor. This is why we support missionaries. This is why we lavish grace on one another and on our neighbors. Because Jesus blesses us with what we have, not so that we can hoard it, but so that we can share for the needs of others. He gives us loaves and fish so that we might share. The more generous we can be, the more sacrificial in our giving we can be, the more we deny our flesh and the less addicted we become to physical satisfaction and amusement. Generosity and fasting will help you, will shape you, will defend you against idolizing physical satisfaction and amusement. If you, if you want direction on fasting, I've got a handout I can give you. I should have had that prepared for you today. But if you'd like to know more about it, we could talk about that offline. But we need to develop a defense against idolizing satisfaction and amusement. And generosity and fasting are two key disciplines to help you. But they aren't the only practical defenses that we have. And we need to look beyond the little boy uh, to Jesus in our text. So go back to verse 1. We'll read 1 to 3, and then we'll jump down to 14. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is, in, which is the Sea of Tiberias, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who's come to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus is constantly withdrawing from the crowds, retreating off by himself or with God or with the disciples. We see this time and time again in the Gospels. Why? Probably to get a break, sure. But also looking to to ground himself, to keep himself focused. He wasn't constantly distracted. He wasn't constantly amused. Instead, he attended to his most important relationships, his relationship with his father. And we see here also his relationship with his disciples. So if Jesus hadn't been born in the first century, if he'd instead been born in the 21st century, I have a hard time believing he'd use social media that much because it is an attention deficit creator. Social media is like a black hole that steals time and energy and attention. The truth is, regularly, when I'm doing my quiet time with the Lord, when I've got my Bible out or I'm going through my, my prayer list, I am often distracted by a notification going off on my phone. Or because I made some kind of a post and I'm thinking, has anybody responded yet? That I'm distracted. Your pastor has to turn his phone and his computer off and put them away so that I can have quiet time with the Lord. If I'm struggling with that, I'm going to assume a large percentage of you are as well. The Christian tradition values time alone with God. Time alone with yourself. And time alone with the most important people in your life. Dare I say that the Christian tradition values silence and rest. Why? Because it's in moments of silence with ourselves and God that our satisfaction with him grows. You know, if you're always just got the billboard top 100 blaring in your ear, it becomes hard to appreciate the beauty of classical music. But if you can step away from the bread and the games, the distraction and the noise, dare I say, if you observe the Sabbath, you'll find in God something much more meaningful, much more satisfying, much more deep and and beautiful than what the world offers you. And it's notable that Jesus 
spent time alone with God in the morning and at night. Jesus wasn't lazy. Dude was out hustling during the day, working hard, but he stepped away to cultivate a life centered on communion with God, the one from whom life flows. We need to develop a defense against idolizing satisfaction and amusement. And generosity and fasting are two key disciplines to help you, as are time alone with yourself and time alone with God. But finally, let's consider one last defense, and this one is a countercultural defense. I think this is your last blank, yeah. Take inventory. This is the countercultural defense. Take inventory. Where do you see shrines of worship? satisfaction and amusement in your life. Take inventory of the shrines of worship to satisfaction and amusement in your life. I joke with, you know, as Haslin Scott earlier, Scott and I are part of a men's group on Monday mornings, and uh, I've been joking that we're becoming Luddites in that group. You know, we're like old men griping about cell phones and how mechanized transportation and the Internet have ruined society. Uh, But I do want you to open your eyes We don't have the Roman government providing bread and games to keep us fat and happy. And you may not have loaves and fish to spare. You might just be scraping by. But what are the sources of physical satisfaction and entertainment in your life? What are the things that could so satisfy you and distract you and your children and your unbelieving friends that you start to forget why you really exist? What are the things that demand your attention and action so much that it almost starts to seem like your life is for them rather than for Christ? What are you gaining with your life at the risk of your soul? Just look for the shrines. What's in the center of your living room? What's at the focal point of your attention in your bedroom? What items do you carry on your purpose that if you didn't have it, it'd make you feel naked? Look for those shrines that say, I value this, I need this, my precious thing. Might be your fridge. It might be your TV. It might be your phone. It might be sleep. It might be physical intimacy with your spouse. What shrines do you see? What are you depending on to make you whole? Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him. And how can you do that? By believing that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and thereby to find your life in him. Friends, have you taken on other masters? Are you seeking satisfaction from other lovers, other kings, other foods than Jesus himself? And what are you offering to others by your own example? How can we find these shrines of worship to satisfaction and amusement in our lives so that we may tear them down? Follow your money 
and follow your time? What do you spend the most money on? And what do you spend the most time on? Those are usually the things from which we are seeking satisfaction and amusement. So beware of those things. They can easily become the gods on which we rely for meaning, purpose, really, for our life. Take inventory. Find those shrines of worship and destroy them. We need to develop a defense against idolizing satisfaction and amusement because Jesus came to give us a life that never ends, eternal life in communion with God and with his people. And while there's great joy and fulfillment in that, it doesn't look like the happiness that the world offers you. So let's not get sucked into the deception that is so common to humanity. Instead, let us defend ourselves against these idols by living according to the divine lordship of Jesus acted out in practices like generosity, fasting, spending time alone and time alone with God while seeking out and tearing down whatever shrines to amusement and satisfaction we've constructed for ourselves. Christ is our great satisfaction. Christ is our great hope. Christ is our great joy. Indeed, he is life itself. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see The enemies work around us and in us and even in our homes. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to forget why we're here. It's easy to forget there's eternity to deal with. It's easy to forget that every human being we meet has eternal value. So God, help us to have the eyes of Jesus. May we not be like these crowds. May we not be even like the disciples in their confusion. Help us to be like Christ. Help us to be like this little boy. Protect us, Lord, against the idols of satisfaction and amusement and make us into a force for the eternal kingdom of God. Every individual here, every home, this church, we pray for this this need. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.